Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. Stick to Wrestling is a classic pro wrestling podcast we mostly focus on the 70s and 80s and today we're going to focus on the 80s and let me bring in uh my co-host steve generelli steve thanks for coming back thanks for inviting me john and uh to start this week's show um i actually uh was in touch with a longtime observer reader a good friend of mine uh clon from melbourne if you remember that name from the past i, I know clon i've met clon a really nice guy and i had a pleasure of being in his home he uh told me just right before we started recording that the vince mcmahon book that recently came out ringmaster it has actually hit the new york times bestseller list i hear that's not a, i want to say not a very good book i hear that if you're a wrestling fan you will you'll learn nothing from it i actually was at the barnes and noble recently and uh the book is very thin considering it's supposed to be about his whole life story mm-hmm. and uh and you can just tell by just kind of skimming through it that it's more about i think the business things that have happened in his life and more about uh you know just the big picture of his life it, it doesn't really go into the stuff that we're looking to hear about yeah. like the relationships and uh ins and outs and uh i, I think it is a bit of a disappointment well i again i i, I say that it, it doesn't sound like the book was written for you and i steve it, it seems like it was more for a very casual wrestling fan yeah but i'm surprised uh is doing so well i guess anything with his name on it and coming out around the time of wrestlemania just uh it's selling a lot of copies okay, I, guess. I mean good for the good for whoever wrote it i'm happy for them two things i have to tell you my clon story we're in baltimore in 90 and me you know, me and my friends were a bunch of rowdy kids i kind of jump on his back right and clon's <laughs> like how do you know there's not something wrong with me that like you'll hurt me if you do that and i'm like oh man i felt bad i I guess i can't just jump on people whenever i feel like it and secondly i want to talk about not the last show but the show before where i came on and i was like not feeling well i was exhausted i hadn't slept well for two nights and by the time i got done recording stick to wrestling i was fine because it provided the stimulation that i i needed for on that day and just advice for everyone i knew this coming in i knew this two weeks ago i just didn't listen to myself if you're not feeling well if you're tired get out of bed i know it is it is instinct to kind of slow down whatever no go out for a run go out for a walk jump in the pool if you have that option shoot some baskets do some push-ups whatever don't just sit around like not feeling well just you know get do something to get rolling and steve you and stick to wrestling got me rolling thank you you're very welcome. Words to live by, John. There you go. We are going to do a show with lots of audio today. We have audio from the AWA, the American Wrestling Association from 1983. We are going to celebrate that 40-year anniversary. Let's let's hear the intro for, the, for this fabulous AWA All-Star Wrestling show. Oh. Star Wrestling. All Star Wrestling is sanctioned by the AWA, the American Wrestling Association. 
All-Star Wrestling presents the top professional wrestlers from the United States, Canada, England, Germany, Australia, Mexico, Poland, Japan, the greatest professional wrestlers from throughout the world. And now to the ring for All-Star Action. Poland. That was the most entertaining thing about that statement. <laughs> We're all over the place. We're in Poland. No, that, that's great that they mentioned Poland. But uh, when, when I heard uh, when I heard all that that great intro, I was thinking to myself, uh, you know, back in the early seventies, and maybe you can remember this, John. Do you remember like it seemed like every day if you're watching TV, like old reruns of old shows. They always had these commercials for blasting caps. Children, be careful walking down the street. Do not touch this. A blasting cap. Something that could destroy a building. <laughs> Do you remember that? I, I don't. A <laughs> blasting cap. What is that? I, I think it, it must be something to use to detonate buildings or in construction sites. But, but that AWA uh, Roger Kent promo, it just sounded like, uh, you know, young people of the world of Gotham City, be careful. Uh, yeah, that's the kind of what it sounds well, like. I, I'm totally with whoever that person was. I think you should be over 18 in order to uh, run or use a blasting cap, whatever a blasting <laughs> cap may be. Steve, you made a really astute observation about the AWA during this uh, time period, they had a secondary title in 1985, the America's title held by Sergeant Slaughter. This promotion needed a secondary title way, way, way before that. And by then it was too late. You know, the uh, WWF, as we've kind of uh, spent a lot of time talking about that, they transitioned from the 70s to the 80s by trying to do new, new things that would kind of spark interest or keep people interested. Uh, you know, key among them was probably bringing in the Intercontinental title to uh, headline a lot of the B and C town shows. The AWA, uh, I, I think one of their biggest things, besides you know not having a secondary title, they, they put on good shows. They had great stars involved. But to me, uh, they never really did much in the way of angles or uh, uh, things that would uh, kind of move the storyline around. I mean, uh, you know, if you got the Observer in the 80s and you were reading about WWF, you know, uh, one week it's Ron Bass hits Brutus Beefcake with his spurs. Uh, next week it's Randy Savage hits Steamboat with his bell, uh, ring bell. I mean, these things would happen every week just to kind of push that storyline along or maybe begin a new storyline in the wrestling. But uh, to the AWA, it just seemed like nothing really ever happened. I wouldn't, I, you know, I agree with you. It, it was a lot like the WWF in the late seventies, early eighties. Is that you know you had a handful of angles every year, and that's it. And then when the WWF went national, they went more you know storyline based. You know, okay, this is why I'm coming to see uh, Ron Bass and Brutus Beefcake. It's a grudge match, and you know. And, but then again, the more I think about it, the AWA when I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna like get every AWA fan mad at me. Can you remember a good AWA angle? Like, wow, I like that one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I mean, the only things I remember, and again, this is coming from somebody that really didn't get to see them until they hit ESPN. I mean, the only things I can remember were like, uh, you know, the blaster breaking through the wall, oh, dear. <laughs> attacking Larry Nelson, and, uh, and you know, these these odd odd and end type things. Uh, I, I mean, in, in their in their defense, 
by the time that ESPN happened for them, the, the roster had been really depleted. And by the time they were doing these tapings at the showboat, the showboat, they didn't know who was going to be there. No. So you had like Dick Slater one week, you had Ron Garvin the next taping, you had somebody else the next time. And you, you you couldn't really you know, put together these storylines or these long-term angles because you never knew who was going to show up. That is an excellent point. You're right. It was uh, at the end, it was a little bit like running, you know, Memphis, like, you know, this guy's not going to be here in four weeks. So, you know, don't, don't exactly buy a house for him. I mean, you know, <laughs> but I remember they did one angle in 85. It was really simple. Jim Garvin comes to the ring you know, starts talking with uh, Rick Martell, the AWA champion. He and Precious get in his face, and Garvin suckers him and, and runs his head into the ring post and bloodies him up, and that was it. And I was like, okay, that's good. Now we have an angle, and you guys kept it nice and simple. But then, you know, as we went along, and I want everyone to know this, people in general did not get into the whole Colonel De Beers, the racist South African guy going after Jimmy Snooker. Like everyone was repulsed by that or everyone I knew was like, this is garbage. Get it out of here. And just, you know, the AWA never seemed really creative, but with all of that said, in 1983, they were doing killer business and they were doing killer business before and after that. Yeah, I mean, the, the AWA, uh, even though we were busting out of here for the beginning of the show, I mean, they have an excellent history, oh, yeah. a great history. Uh, you know, the, the 60s is when the promotion began right around 1960. Uh, Vern uh, was a very well-respected uh, Olympic wrestler, uh, amateur wrestler. He had been one of the uh, – in the original wave of TV wrestling in the late 40s, early 50s for national wrestling. He was one of the known names and uh, had been in the championship championship picture with the NWA, uh, always regarded highly and, and through a series of things, he became the promoter of that area with Wally Carbo and, and in the sixties and then the seventies, uh, he had a great promotion, a highly successful promotion that just started to expand and get bigger and bigger. And and really, there was nothing but success in the 60s and the 70s. And even the early 80s was very successful. No, and yeah, I mean, even after Vince McMahon expanded, you know, people act like, you know, as soon as Hogan left, the AWA died. No, the AWA had a very strong 1984 and a pretty strong 1985. 86 is when the ship really hit the rocks. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think what happened, you had a lot of um, people that jumped from, um, and I know some of the people have said it's almost predatory the way Vince went after the AWA talent. Oh, I wouldn't talent. say almost, but go ahead. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, and I've got a list here in front of me. I went through all their 1983 matches, and these guys would, that I'm going to mention to you would all be in the WWF by the end of 83 or even in 84 at one point. So you have Pat Patterson, Rene Goulet, Hulk Hogan, Ken Patera, uh, Puppy Dog Peliquin, <laughs> Mad Dog Vachon, Bobby Heenan, Spike Huber, Jesse Ventura, Blackjack Lanza, uh, Bruce Beefcake was wrestling there as Ed Leslie in the 83, and lastly, David Schultz. And of course, not to mention uh, Mean Gene, who was so important to the whole thing. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, all those guys would end up in New York and, uh, you know, Bobby Heenan and other wrestlers, Jesse Ventura would soon follow. And, you know, Vern, Vern was just a really tough guy to work for, I guess. I mean, he was a good payoff guy. I mean, a lot of people say that, but, um, 
like Jim Brunzel has told the story that he really wanted to stay in the, in the Twin Cities or stay with the AWA. Uh, and this is after already so many of these guys had left. And he sat down with Vern and basically said, you know, I, I am, you know, New York is calling me, but I want to stay because I have family here. And, and he wanted to get like a guarantee of like 85000 a year or something like that. That was certainly within reason or, or seemed reasonable in you know, Vern basically said, you know, if you if you uh, if you if you think you can do better, go ahead, leave. You know, something like that. And and this is a guy who had been there since day one. I mean, since he since his career began. So there was really no kind of sense of loyalty or he. Vern was uh, a really hard guy to uh, get along with at times. You know, one thing I forgot to do when we started up the show, we have a, a Stick to Wrestling uh, Facebook group, which you can be part of. And, and the thing came up about Vern Gagne, the, the rumor that Vern Gagne wanted to pay the Iron Sheik hundred grand to break one of Hulk Hogan's legs and, and thus end Vince McMahon's uh, you know, plan on, on expanding to, uh, nationally. And I, I hear, I remember stories like that from Brunzel where Vern's like, if you want to go, just go. Bobby Heenan said the same thing. He sat down with the Ganyas and they, you know, they were nice enough to him, but he was like, you know, if you want to go, go. And that's why I, I don't believe that story at all. Like Vern just kind of didn't care who he lost. It's just, you know, he, he saw the wrestlers as somewhat, uh, fungible. Yeah, and, and I think that that really, in the in the long run, hurt his promotion because, uh, you know, I, I think the uh, to a lot of the fans were loyal to the AWA. Uh, Hulk Hogan had been one of their star performers, and of course, Mean Gene was right at the, uh, the the lead of the show every week, telling you what's going on, what's happening, and to see those two go to New York and uh, end up being on NBC with Saturday Night's main event and the cartoon show on CBS. Uh, I could see where they could think that their local product may have been uh, old-fashioned or not as important, and I could see where maybe more eyes went toward the WWF than the AWA, and and that's that's basically what happened over time. Just the AWA the uh, AWA machine kind of got weaker, and the WWF machine got stronger, and and we all know how everything turned out after that. Bill Watts tells a story about Vern Gagne. Okay, I forget where they were, but they were like, "Oh, let's go out and get some Mexican food," and Vern, you know, they get in the car, and Vern's like, hey, "Here's a Mexican place. Let's stop there." And Bill Watts is like, "No, I know a place, you know, just a few miles away that's really good." And Vern's like, "Ah, Bill, Mexican food is Mexican food." <laughs> and Watts is like, you know, Vern, that's your problem. You think Mexican food is Mexican food and wrestling is wrestling and it's not. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's definitely more to it than that. But I, I want to hear some more of these great clips uh, to take me back to the early 70s, the days of blasting caps. <laughs> This, well, I don't know if they still had blasting cabs in 1983, but that's really all I have right now. <laughs> okay, all right. Let's, Let, let's go to number. Let's go to uh, clip number two with Wahoo McDaniel and Rick Martell. And to the Mile High City, off and running All Star Wrestling. What a week for promoter Gene Reed. Listen to this, ladies and gentlemen. You know, High Flyers, Greg Gagne, Jim Brunzel. Signed for a title defense on the next card, and their opponents, none other than Ken Patera and Jesse the Body Ventura. More on that in a moment. Wahoo McDaniel, come on in. Former Denver football great, and of course, I know a longtime friend of Red Miller now coaching the Denver Gold. That's right. You know, um, I talked to Red Miller on the phone. He's invited me to come out and watch him work out. 
and I'm looking forward to coming to Denver and uh, seeing them work out and alleviate a little problem that has been involving me out there. Wait a minute. What are you talking about? A problem that has been involving you here? Well, you know, I've been talking to Gene Reed, and I'm not going to deny the fact that I've been trying to get a match with Heenan. They say, well, he's a manager. He's not a wrestler. Well, I'll tell you one thing, Heenan. You want to stick your nose in people's business, then you're going to have to put the tights on. And I'm going to tell you, if you get in the ring with me, and if Gene Reed can get this match signed... I'm going to take you in that match, and I'm going to hold you in that ring, and I'm going to make you suffer. And when I get through with you, then I'm going to Gene Reed, and I'm going to get my hands on Bockwinkle again. I thank you very much. I am certain Mr. Heenan would be very apprehensive if that were to take place. Rick Martell, come on in. Rick Martell, yes, you're signed on the next card against Sheik Adonon LKC. Well, I have one thing to say. I'm not finished with LKC. E-E-E. Try to cripple me before. Try to put me out of wrestling, but she, I guarantee you one thing. You're not going to go away from me without paying your dues. Thank you very much. All right, Rick Martel, brilliant star out of Quebec City, Quebec in Canada, and one of the top contenders certainly today for the World's Heavyweight Championship. Wow, a 1983 USFL Denver Gold reference. By the way... <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't ready for that one, even though I'm the one who made the recording, but I did it like two or three months ago. I'll tell you what, I just want to remind everyone that anytime we use audio on the show, it is for educational and review purposes only. And we're very fair here at Stick to Wrestling. We're going to allow Bobby Heenan, Jesse Ventura, and Ken Patera to retort. Let's hear from them. Did you hear Wahoo McDaniel? He wants to eliminate a problem, namely you. Oh, I happen to be a problem to him. He's a problem to professional wrestling. He does nothing but get in people's way and sticks his nose in people's business. He is constantly griping. From the day he gets up, from the time he gets up, to the time he goes to bed. He's whining and he's griping. I don't want to hear nothing about Wahoo McDaniels. I got bigger and better plans. I'm planning a party for the heavyweight tag team champions of the world, Pater and Ventura. This is what I want, and this one's for Bobby Duncan. All right, Jesse, the body Ventura now, teaming up with Ken Patera. Let me tell you something, a few facts. When big bad Bob Duncan got hurt, Mr. Heenan came to me, Jesse the body, because he knows that I have great knowledge of the high criers. If you think back a couple of years, it was Ganyan Brunzel that stole the title from Mr. Adrian Adonis and Jesse the body. Well, stolen. So what man in wrestling would know enough to be able to step in immediately with Ken Patera and win the Tag Team Championship of the World. Ain't that right, Kenny? Isn't that the truth? This is the time. This is the place. Denver and the High Flyers are going down. Just like you stole the belts in Green Bay a few years ago. Well, we're not going to have to steal them. We're going to take them off your waist. We're going to beat you in the middle of the ring. One, two, three. And we will become... The new world tag team champion. Get a shot of the arms. Look at the arms. Can the high flyers match that? Look at the definition on the chest. Look at the back. There's not a goat roper. Okay, those are three guys who definitely know how to do an interview, especially, well, Patera was great, but Bobby Heenan was off the charts and Jesse Ventura. Steve, I have been asked a bunch of times, like, okay, what should the AWA have done? After losing Hulk Hogan, I came up with this maybe a year ago, which is about 39 years too late. I would have turned <laughs> Jesse Ventura babyface and made him the top star. 
you know, that's something I've never heard anybody mention before, but uh, I think there would have been some validity to that. He already had some cult fans rooting for him because he was kind of a hip guy and unique, and uh, he was local. And, if, you know, they needed a, like a local hero to go by, and he was a rock and roll guy. I mean, that, that could have actually worked. Vern would have never gone for it. It's just not his style of champion. I mean, I think he would have rolled out a 50-year-old Billy Robinson before he did something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but Wahoo McDaniel in the AWA, he had been in the Carolinas for, I mean, consistently for the better part, almost an, an entire decade, made a couple of shots in Florida, Georgia Southwest, but he was more or less homesteading in mid-Atlantic. Uh, he, ha- he had been a big star in the AWA early to mid-70s, and now he's back. Yeah, and I, I think this is one of the really uh... – downfalls of the AWA in this period. They had so many of these older guys who had been super, super over. Uh, They mentioned Bobby Duncombe on the promo who apparently got injured. Uh, Wahoo McDaniel. uh, I mean, Baron Von Raschke was still very popular at the time. Uh, Sheikah and then LKC. I mean, they even used Dick the Bruiser. I mean, they, they had a lot of older, older talent that was used, you know, probably more than they should have been. And uh, in Wahoo McDaniel in the promo we heard, I mean, they're referencing his football career. The guy retired like in the late yes. 60s. <laughs> Here we are in the 80, in 83. And, and Wahoo, I guess, was liked by Vern. And I think he liked people who had a sporting background. And, and he would become an AWA booker in, during the dying days of the AWA. But, yeah, it just um, – I think every time that – that Vince took one of their younger stars, they would get a star from the past, like a Wahoo or a Billy Robinson, and and kind of hope that they could be enough to uh, make the fans just through the wrestling, you know, not notice who was missing. But after a while, I think the fans realized that uh, all the young talent is gone, and now that we just have the old stars of the past are still here. That's that's all very true. I mean, in 1984, the AWA Tag Team Champions were. Baron Von Raschka and the Crusher. And it's like, you've got to be kidding me. You go look at the wrestling on the other channel that's on now, the WWF, and look what you're doing. And it's like, I understand, look, there's there's no easy solution to, you know, okay, Vince McMahon is coming to town with Hulk Hogan, Gene Okerlund, and the rest of the WWF roster, you know, and then not just old AWA guys. I mean, you turn on the TV, Roddy Piper's going to make you want to buy a ticket. So it, it that's tough to to you know kind of push back on, but having you know, I mean having the Crusher and Baron von Raschke as tag team champions, I don't know what to say. They, I mean they had they had opportunities to do things differently. I mean they could have you know kept Jim Brunzel. They could have you know had other talent come in. I mean one of one of the biggest mistakes that they they as far as what they could have done. I mean, Randy Savage was a free agent that anybody could have signed. I mean, he, he could have come in in 84 and 85. He could have been the AWA champion. I mean, he was, you know, for those that knew in wrestling, he was like the greatest uh, kind of free agent that was out there. But uh, maybe because he worked out law promotions at one point, or he was just, uh, you know, wrestling in you know smaller areas maybe i mean but Vern Vern even worked with memphis he had relationships with memphis he should have known that this randy savage was out there but you know i, I saw a shoot that was very telling with uh, colonel de beers in recent years where he talked about uh the mentality of Vern and greg and and he basically said something to the effect of um 
that Vernon Gregg kind of felt like, well, if so-and-so is bigger than we are, and say if Hulk Hogan is bigger than we are, you know, are the fans going to forget about us? And I, I think, I kind of think that was one of the things that, you know, was the downfall of the AWA. They may have been more concerned about being over and being legends of their territory than letting the next guy come along and, and do big business. I mean, another thing too, you know, if you're Vern Gagne, you've done great business for all of those years, you know, why are you reinventing the wheel, not realizing that the wheel has already been invented by the guy from Connecticut? Right, right. Yeah, it's, um, uh, you know, it's it, it just, just the changing of the times. Uh, yeah, wrestling was getting more uh, outlandish, crazy angles, and uh, and really over-the-top characters. I mean, the AWA had a lot of that. But when they lost Hogan and eventually lost me and Gene and uh, lost uh, Jesse the Body, they were just uh, left with some good talent. I mean, they had the fabulous ones. They had other young wrestlers, Rick Martel as champion. But uh, they just couldn't compete with New York because the roster was was humongous by that time. And if you're Vern Gagne, too, you might say to yourself, hey, Hulk Hogan was here for like two years and three months. We've been here a lot longer. We, we we were fine before we had him. We'll be fine after he leaves. Again, not really realizing that the that the game was changing. But with that, let's hear from Greg Gagne and Jim Brunzel. High flyers in action. Greg Gagne, Jim Brunzel. I'm going to give them a second to catch their breath before they head to the locker room. We do want to talk to them. A couple of single matches. I want to point out. It will be. Mad Dog Vasham facing Jerry Blackwell here in town on the next card. Brad Ringens to go against Golden Greek John Tolis. And as you know, Rick Martell to meet the Sheik. Gentlemen, please, come on in. You've heard from Bobby Heenan, Ken Patera, Jesse the Body Ventura. They are already, Greg Gagne, proclaiming victory for themselves. You know, Gene, we've been very busy this year, and it's been unfortunate. We haven't had a chance to get up to the Eagles Club in Aspen, Colorado, because some oh, of the greatest great. wrestling fans in all the world are up there. And all through Colorado, and they've been behind the high flyers, and we appreciate the fact that they've supported us in the past. But how a team like Patera and Ventura deserve a title match is beyond us. First of all, they've never wrestled as a team. Who have they beat? Exactly. Well, good point. Good point. They are a newly what formed alliance. What gives them the right to go after the world's tag team title? I'll tell you what. Bobby the Weasel Heenan, that's who did it. Because Bobby Duncan got hurt, he put pressure on Stanley Blackburn. He had us fined for our actions in the ring with Patera and Duncan, had us reprimanded by the AWA, and they said we have to step in the ring with Patera and Ventura. Well, if they think they're going to come in and steamroll over us, they're out of their mind because they're going to have to earn this championship and they're going to have to beat us to do that. You know, Jimmy Bronzel, Jesse Ventura, quick to point out that in his mind, in the mind of Adrian Adonis, you and Greg stole the championship belts from them a couple of That's years what ago. You call it being a poor loser, Gene. Uh, Sour grapes. Let's look at Jesse point. Ventura and look at Ken Patera. Two big men, two big athletes. Put them together, like Greg said, who have they ever beaten? They're very, very fortunate to get this championship match. And Greg and I, under no way are we going in this match underestimating anybody, and especially when Bobby Heenan's in their corner. I thank you very much, High Flyers, so current tag team one. champions of the world, Greg Gagne, Jim Brunzel. For the Mile High City, there's going to be more exciting action. Okay, once again, anytime we use audio like that on here on Stick to Wrestling, it's for review purposes only. Steve, I put that audio together like two, three months ago, so it's like, you know, I kind of forgot about it. 
where do I start? First of all, John <laughs> Tolos in 1983. <laughs> ah, <laughs> ah, yeah. But secondly, I mean, Greg Gagne, Jim Brunzel, look, they were an excellent, excellent tag team. I've been told by AWA fans that they were the, the Rock and Roll Express before the Rock and Roll Express. But rule number one, I don't know how that ever got on, especially the great Ganya part. I don't know how that got on TV. Number one rule, if you're a baby face, don't whine. Don't whine if you're a baby face. Don't say, oh, I don't know how these guys got a title shot there. You say, hey, I'll take on anybody. I don't care. No, I, I hear exactly what you're talking about. Uh, th- that was so uh, kind of an offensive interview, if anything else. Uh, I think usually in pro wrestling, the idea of an interview, you p- you put over your opponents to make it seem like a real worthwhile match that you'd pay money to see. And Brunzel did did a lot of that on the back end, just trying to save uh, Ganya's face. Sounded there. like it, but. Yeah, he was trying to do some uh, reconnaissance there, but um, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I mean, it just, uh, you know, w- w- why would he be talking that way? Because I mean, these guys were were two major stars. Patera had been a really well known AWA star, and and Ventura had just been, uh, you know, came off the East west connection from a couple years earlier so they were both well-regarded guys i mean it's okay to say hey you know these guys have never teamed together and um you know they they probably won't know how to work with each other because they've never teamed but yeah we know that they are both good yeah i thought it was really a screwy interview No, i mean you say you can say something like hey they've never teamed before so that means we have the we have the edge when it comes to experience but they have the edge where they can watch all kinds of film on us. We have no idea what these guys are going to do, but whatever they're going to do, we're going to be ready for it. We're going to fight our hardest. You know, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, the uh, High Flyers had a lot of, uh, uh, you know, people thought so highly of them. I remember hearing um, uh, Larry Manisic on an old shoot interview uh, was talking about um, how he, he thought of them after seeing them wrestle in St. Louis. And apparently they had a really good match that, that was super hot. And it really was a highlight of a major show in St. Louis, which was still a major uh, NWA city at the time. And it just made me think that uh, the career trajectory of the high flyers and, uh, you know, eventually, you know, both of their careers, it, I think they would have been better served if they had kind of, uh, uh, been like a regular tag team act, like a lot of the other tag teams that are well known, like the say the Valiants or the Blackjacks or whoever. If they had just kind of traveled around to the different circuits rather than homesteading in the AWA, because no matter how good they were in the AWA, I think uh, after a while people just took them for granted. Like you know, this is kind of like the home team, or this is Vern's son and his partner. I don't think they gave him enough credit after a while. Had they had they gone out and had all these different successes in other areas and then came back, I think that would have been a more effective uh, career arc for them. It, it would have been, and that was another one of your good points that you brought up to me before the show. Um, I, I guess it depends on what they wanted to do. It sounded like, you know, my guess is Greg Gagne was fine doing what he was doing. He was making a lot of money. He, you know, was working for his dad. He probably had... Uh, duties outside of just you know making the towns but that's a really good point that you made that if Ganya and Brunzel really wanted to be that tag team you know they could have done a run in the Carolinas or Georgia and Florida freshen themselves up a little bit for the AWA audience and then made the big return 
I think the reason that this kind of that idea resonated with me was I was kind of looking at the WWF guys. I mean, the WWF, you know, had Bruno back on his champion. And then you had some guys who were homesteaders, like you had your Putski or maybe even Strongbow. But they always kept the tag teams always mixed up. They'd always have uh, a new baby face team, a brand new team, a new heel team, and then they'd just keep swapping them out every few months or yeah. so. Uh, and, and they kept it fresh, and it kind of kept it interesting. Uh, here in the AWA, I mean, uh, I think the uh, the High Flyers were born sometime in the mid-'70s. Uh, they started really feuding for the titles, or I think around 76, and it became uh, you know, Blackjack Lanza and Bobby Duncan were their main uh, foes and then they switched it up to uh, Adonis and Ventura and you know there were other teams involved uh, Patera and Blackwell uh, you know Patera and Duncombe I mean they had other teams but it was always the high flyers and I think that probably over time fans were getting tired of the high flyers just because they were always there yeah they started i believe in 1974 and were together until brunzel left 10 years later now brunzel had a run in the mid-atlantic area but i I mean it was pretty quick and it was you know when i say quick seven or eight months and when ganya and brunzel finally won the tag team titles i want to say beginning of 1977 it really did feel like okay the hometown guys won but that that gets old after a while. And like you pointed out, the WWF had homesteaders like Ivan Putski, except he would disappear for a couple of years and then come back. Strongbow did the same thing. You know, he left in 79, didn't come back until 82. Like the AWA guys, guys just stuck around. Yeah, I, I think in the long run, that was uh, probably a major difference. Uh and, I, and I, I, you have to give a lot of the credit to, to the uh, the elder Vince McMahon. I mean, uh, you know, we talk about all these other promoters, you know, the the uh, uh, Bill Watts and Eddie Graham and uh, uh, Roy Shires, all these great promoters are all great. But, you know, Vince was the only one that we know of that had this, you know, humongous uh, book, this big planner. And, and he was planning Madison Square Garden for like 12 months from now. And he really knew how to get everything in motion just like his son does now to, you know, whether it's uh, the garden in 12 months or WrestleMania next year, uh, he knew how to put all those levers in motion and do the right thing. Vern um, was a good promoter, an excellent promoter, but I think as far as thinking forward into the future and this planning and and setting these uh, big rivalries in motion, I don't think he was really up to the challenge in that regard. No, I mean he was not prepared at all to take on Vince McMahon. I mean, and again, I'm I'm giving Vern credit for everything that he did. He promoted really successfully for over 20 years, I think. But the world changed, and you know, as, as someone who Believe me, I get it. The world changes, and sometimes it leaves people. I'm about Vern's age when Vern started losing his grip on the AWA, so I totally get that. But with that, let's hear from Mad Dog Vashon. I mentioned the singles match, Jerry Blackwell, to meet Mad Dog Vashon. Make no mistake about it, ladies and gentlemen, this will not be a battle. It, in fact, will be a war. Maurice, Maurice Vashon, please come on in if you would. Jerry Black. Mad Dog is a name, if you don't mind. I left Maurice back home a long time ago. There's no place in professional wrestling. No one I'd get in the ring for anybody else but a Mad Dog. Jerry Blackwell, 
You made me a mad dog. It's people like you that turned me from a Maurice to a mad dog. You made me what I am today. What I'm going to be in the ring when I get with you, you fat slob. Well, you put you put me out of wrestling for over two years. But you know something, fat well, you can never do it alone. But this time, you're going to be alone. Alone with a mad dog. I told you I would get you one way or the other. When yeah. you're looking over your shoulder, there'll be a mad dog on your tracks. Now I've got you cornered like a rat. You're nothing else but. And also a big yellow fat one. But you know something? This time, you will have nobody to turn to to tag. When the altitude of my eye, when you're out of steam, I'll chew on your bones, I'll bite you, I'll break more of your bones, I'll crush you. It's gonna be a tough fight, so you better come out fighting. You better come out fighting! I like that. People like you turned me from Maurice into Mad Dog. Steve, we were talking about the, just talking about the AWA, not really doing a lot of long-term planning. But one thing they did plan long-term is is Crusher Blackwell's babyface turn. Like everything with Adnan was supposed to be leading up to that. And because Patera defected to the WWF and everything else happened, it was no, and Blackwell ran into health issues as well. It didn't turn into anywhere near as, as big a deal as they thought it was going to be, but uh, Crusher Blackwell was going to get a huge babyface push, maybe even an AWA championship, if you can believe that. Yeah, he was he was a very uh, sympathetic uh, fan favorite when that time came for him to become one. I mean, he uh, was very soft spoken, and and you you did kind of feel empathy for him for all that the other heels had put him through. And I think at the time he was primarily feuding with Brody at the time that they kind of switched him over. Uh, so um, yeah, it, it it was interesting with him and. Uh, and I think you mentioned on a prior show he he was going to switch to the WWF and got to one of the TV tapings and basically fell asleep and then went, went home after that. that. That is correct. I remember them uh, saying on TNT that next week Crusher Blackwell is going to be with us. And I was like, oh, wow, another AWA guy. And I was left wondering for about three years what happened. And then I heard that story. He showed up at a taping. He decided it was too much uh, sitting around doing interviews. And he just got up and left. Yeah, well, well, good for him. And um, and, and about the, about the uh, Mad Dog Vishon interview, I, I think you kind of look at it, you know, one in, one of a couple of different ways. If if you're just like an average person, just like flipping channels, maybe you don't even know anything about wrestling, and you come upon this guy, you know, going crazy. I, I think I think he's like the perfect, uh, or that interview is the perfect like stereotype of what professional wrestling was to the average not like non fan or person that didn't like wrestling. You know, here's a guy that looks like 110 years old. You know, uh, you know, talking really strangely and in a really weird manner about this opponent that we don't know. But in another way, I mean, the interview was was quite effective too. I mean, if you're a wrestling fan and you can understand what he's getting yeah. at, I mean, he 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 did a very good job in the interview, and uh, and and that was a hot angle at the time as far as him uh, 
uh, trying to put uh, Blackwell into a uh, coffin, or I think it was a coffin match type thing coming yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, you're right. The person, typical person who's not a wrestling fan is going to look at Mad Dog Rashawn, this rather strange-looking man who's, you know, past middle age at that point. He's missing some <laughs> teeth, and, you know, he's out there scream, screaming about what he's going to do to the guy. But, I mean, hey, that's how wrestling works. And once again, let's hear some audio. Sheik Adnan El Casey and the guy we just talked about, Jerry Blackwell. Some time back, Martel has not forgotten it. He has made his feelings and his intentions quite known. Well, that's going to be the part of your life, Mr. Ricky Martel. Because when you step in the ring with his highness, Sheik Adnan Al-Kaisi, you are stepping with the real man. When you finish your match with me, you are graduating with your PhD of wrestling. We should not be wrestling alone in a single matches. His Highness and myself, we should be wrestling in a tag match all the time. That, but your Highness, that. my heart is with you. Whether it is a single match or a tag match, we always together. All right, Jerry Blackwell, you, my friend, are going to have to deal with the likes of Mad Dog Bichon. Not Maurice Bichon, Mad Dog Bichon. Let me tell you, Stanley Blackburn, you've split us up. And you're trying to prevent us from going for the world titles. And not only did you split us up and try to keep us from doing that, you forced me to get in the ring with Mad Dog Bichon, the man that broke my hand, the man that broke this man's arm. And he's standing out here talking about throwing the rule book out the window. Well, let me tell you right now, I want two officials. Stanley Blackburn, I want you sitting at ringside. I want you to see what kind of a maniac you forced me to get in the ring with. That's right. And when I say force, that's what I mean. Because I don't want to get in the ring with Mad Dog Vashon. Because when you call him a mad dog, that's exactly what he is. And I want you to sit right there at ringside. I, couldn't I want you to see that. exactly what that man does. Thank you. I want you to Thank know what kind of a wrestler he is. Because he's nothing but a mad dog. He wants balls. to do anything he can do Single to me. Matches. Take Stanley away, Blackburn. Okay, we were just talking about pro wrestling cliches with Mad Dog Rashawn. How about the guy dressed up as a sheik screaming into the camera and the other guy who clearly is from Georgia or someplace like it also dressed as a sheik and screaming at the camera? Yeah, I, I, the um, uh, Sheik Adnan, I, I always thought was just such a such a, a kind of a ripoff gimmick even at the time i i thought was so bad in every way i mean he he wasn't the sheik ed farhad he wasn't the iron sheik he was the sheik ed on lkc uh, i mean he could wrestle he was a wrestler back in the day uh, we know him as billy white wolf from the wwf but uh, i never i never cared for him i i thought he was a uh, really overblown, overrated uh, manager, uh, but apparently he's a nice guy in real life from what I've heard, so kudos to him. No, I agree with everything you said. I thought he was a terrible manager, but I mean, I, I've heard he's a really good guy in real life, and someday I will read his book. We were just talking about Crusher Blackwell in the WWF in 1984. He makes it to a taping and doesn't even make the, you know, last the, the entire taping. He walks out. Something happened with Crusher Blackwell in the WWF in 1978. He had been there in 1976, kind of a mid-card guy. Then they brought him back in 1978, managed by the Grand Wizard of Wrestling. It looked like he was going to get a big push, and all of a sudden, like it, it just died. I have no idea what happened. But, Steve, I'm sure you remember that. 
in the WWF. He was on TV uh, most weeks. Uh, but uh, one thing you might remember, John, he um, he had like a one-off title match at the Spectrum with Backlund. Do you remember anything about that? With Backlund, no. I, I don't remember. I don't even know about that. I, I don't think he got any matches against San Martino in 76 either. But I had no idea they wrestled Definitely at not. the Spectrum. Yeah, yeah, it was actually just one match. I think it was in '78. Uh, Backlund uh, beat him in a, a one uh, one off match. I'm I'm assuming that he just got him up in the atomic drop and and pinned him that way. But that that's one I've never seen. But it might be out uh, there. I mean, I kind of doubt it. I mean, that was way back before a whole lot of stuff was was being recorded. But anyway, I'll tell you what. Let's hear from Brad Rangins and again from Crusher Jerry Blackwell. Ringens, I sit here viewing the monitor, seeing the replay of that incident from late last year. I see the grimacing on your face. I see the contortions. And I can't blame you one bit. Granted, scars on the ankle as a direct result of the actions and tactics of the Sheik and Jerry Blackwell. But I'm certain more important, the scars inside here. Well, Gene, every time I look at that tape, I have one thing in mind. And that's revenge. And Blackwell... It's just going to be you and I in the ring, nobody else. And you're going to wish you never did that, what you did to me. Because when I come into that ring, Fatwell, it's going to be you and I, and I'm going to do just one thing. I'm going to knock your head off. Usually a, a very quiet, modest young man, tremendously intense there. Jerry Blackwell, you heard what Let he Let me had. tell you something before I get started on this. What an injustice when we wrestled Greg Gagne and Jim Bronzel. I cannot believe it. What are we going to have to do in order to get the world titles? You probably can't. And then another thing, I'm hot at you too. Why are you showing that on nationwide TV here again? There's no reason to show that whatsoever. The only thing it shows is what a fair person I am. This man comes sticking his nose in my business. He gets his foot hurt, and then he blames me on it. Well, let me tell you something, Brad Ringens. You come in that ring, and you knock my head off if you can. You suplex me if you can. You hurt me if you can. And you beat me if you can. Which I don't think you can. But there's one thing for sure. You're liable to walk away from there and need some more surgery on that ankle. You're liable to go to the hospital and never wrestle again, boy, and I'm going to enjoy it. <laughs> All right, Sheik, add it on, El Keith. And please don't shout, Sheik. Please don't this shout. This is the way I speak to my harem. You have got and Rick Martell. this Mar is the way. Please. You've got Rick Martell. Let's set the record straight. Rick Martell, in the name of his wisdom, you got a match of your life. You have to fight an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Because I want to do anything possible to put you out. Because, your highness, now let's have Jeannie do some dancing for us. Well, it's and give us some part of your exactly what they're and trying to do. They're trying to split us up. They're trying to put us in single matches. And Ricky Martel, this man is going to go in there and destroy you. He's going to show you what he's made of. And I'm going to be setting it in Don't you worry about looking over there. I know. There's 20 or 30 more. That's our exact. Watch your action.
Steve, sometimes as we record, I come up with come up with ideas for the the title of the show. And maybe 10, 15 minutes ago, the working title was Baby Faces Don't Whine, right? (laughs) But now I've got two alternatives. Please don't shout. But right now, the number one is the the scars on Brad's heart. <laughs> those, those those interviews were really hard to get through. Uh, on the positive side, I, I kind of see Jerry Blackwell as uh, a little bit like uh, Kevin Owens today uh, and WWE, somebody that uh, p- puts out some great great matches and uh, it maybe gets beat down a lot, and uh, but uh, the fans just kind of gain respect for them over time. Uh, and just like them, and I think I think they, the fans in the AWA looked at Jerry Blackwell as a survivor. Yeah, he might lose a lot of matches, he may get beat down, but he's always kept, comes back for more. And I think they respected him. But that Brad Ragan interview is one of the one of the really worst I've heard in a long time. I mean, you know, Brad, the AWA really is the only promotion that was going to feature a guy like Brad Rangans. And every uh, promoter and every promotion has its own personality. And that was one of Vern's. I mean, I remember reading, you know, 40 years ago, more than that, 42 years ago, reading about Brad Rangans in the magazines and being like, man, this guy, if he doesn't make it in the AWA, he's not going to make it anywhere. You know, and surprisingly, Vince signed him. Uh, he think Vince brought him in in I think '87. Mm-hmm. He just worked prelims, uh, never did uh, maybe work some TV matches, but uh, you know, he was just probably a good guy to be around to maybe show some of the younger guys some some wrestling moves. But uh, uh, definitely uh, not your professional uh, type wrestler. Uh, but you know, just thinking about him a little bit more. Uh, when the AWA really got in rough area there, him and Ken Vitero won their tag team titles, I think, in 89. Yeah, I remember that. When, when, when the promotion was on fumes and they were called the Olympians. But it was really a uh, just a terrible time for the AWA by no, then. No, it was, it was not good. Like I said, Brad Rangans, you know, I, I could not see him being pushed anywhere except for the AWA. And you're right, he didn't get pushed in the WWF. He was just another guy. Next up, the legendary Nick Bockwinkle, let's hear from him. Just seen Golden Greek, John Tullis in action. Nick Bockwinkle, I want to bring you in. Even though former Denver Bronco Wahoo McDaniel resides in western Texas, Denver is like a hometown of this man. He played professional football here. He's got a lot of good friends. You'd have to say, yes, he is the hometown favorite. He happens to be challenging you for this little baby which happens to be the world title. Isn't it amazing? He's from Texas. Stanley Blackburn's from Texas. Uh, he played football here, hometown favorite. Two weeks, two weeks, unprecedented. We were informed before the last match that the winner of would have to face Wahoo McDaniels. Now, if you aren't trying to tell me that they want to knock myself and Mr. Heenan off the top of the hill, then what else is going on? It's now, a matter Mc... of interpretation. Oh, isn't it? Yes, it is. And we're interpreting it the way it really probably is. Wahoo McDaniels, I know one thing. You're going to come in there and you're going to fight and scratch and dig and claw. You did it when you played football, and that's the reputation you've had and all the time that you've wrestled. You are a man who will fight to the last breath. And I have to admire you for that. But I want you to know something. I have not been the heavyweight champion of the world for all these years simply because I don't care or I take and have an insouciant attitude. Not at all. I care very highly, and I will dig and claw and scratch and dig. 
And every bit of sweat I've got and every ounce of blood that I can muster up to pump through my body is what I'm going to put into that match because I do not want to come out of the ring as the uncrowned champion. You know, Wahoo thinks this is going to work to his advantage. Mick will not be prepared in two weeks. He won't be ready for this. That is where you've made your big mistake, Papoose Face. You're going to be the one on the short end of that stick. You're going to be the one when that bell rings. What is this? What is this Mick Bockwinkle doing? He's in the best shape I've ever seen in my Gentlemen, life. We That's have exactly time what's going to happen. We're out of time. Okay, and again, uh, anytime we use audio like that and stick to wrestling, it is for review purposes only. Nick Bockwinkle, there is has been a story out there since the 80s about Nick Bockwinkle that I'd like to address here. Nick Bockwinkle, the, the story is, was offered a run with the NWA title in 1979. That story is not, it's not true. It's sort of true in a way. Uh, well, let me explain. Paul Bosch, the Houston promoter, was always very, uh, very high on Nick Bockwinkel, and it's pretty well known he didn't like Harley Race very much. And Paul Bosch said to Nick Bockwinkel in 1979, you know, would you like me to put your name in for a run with the NWA title? And Bockwinkel fly it over and he said, no, you know, I'm happy doing with doing what I'm doing. The NWA title, uh, the NWA champion made a little bit more money, but the lifestyle that uh, Bockwinkel had was just way better than the NWA champion's lifestyle. So that's the story. He wasn't offered the NWA title. He was offered to have it, have it uh, suggested that maybe, you know, put it up for vote. And Nick, Nick said, no, Steve, any thoughts on Nick Bockwinkel? Well, to, to your point that you just said, I, I think, uh, I mean, from what I heard on that story, uh, basically, you know, Nick looked at the paperwork and, and did the math in his head. Of course, he was a brilliant guy, and he uh, figured out that, well, you know, I'm, I'm making almost as much as the NWA champion now, it, it, I, and I don't know what the figures were. Maybe he was making ten or 20000 less. But he was he was having so you know a lot fewer dates than, than the NWA champion was. I say if the NWA champion was working three hundred uh, and thirty days or maybe three hundred days a year, he was working like maybe uh, you know ha- uh, two fifty maybe something like that, and he had a lot more time to himself. Was making almost as much, and and uh, like you said, he had a great relationship with Paul Bosch. He ended up buying into that promotion, and I think Bachwinkle. Maybe even had points in other promotions too. He was really a, a very intelligent guy. Uh, but you know, uh, while we've been talking about all this, one thing that came to my mind was, yeah, you know, this is 1983, and you're talking about Wahoo versus Bachwinkle and these, you know, legendary wrestlers of the 70s. Really, the thing that came to my mind is, if you're looking at sports in general from that era. You think about guys like Ricky Henderson and Tim Raines and uh, and football, uh, Jerry Rice and uh, uh, say John Elway. Uh, these these players who are uh, you know very young and youthful and and uh, and you look at Hogan. I mean Hogan kind of fit into that. Like you know, this guy is the kind of the leader of the future of our sport. And I kind of think this is why the AWA ultimately kind of fell by the wayside. Uh, I think as a fan at home, when you see Randy Savage against Hulk Hogan or Paul Orndorff, you get caught up into it. And you think, God, this is the this is the ultimate uh, in wrestling. The same with Ric Flair against, uh, say, Ricky Steamboat. You really can can really suspend disbelief. But when you're watching, uh, you know, Bachwinkle and, and uh, say Wahoo. 
I mean, Bachwinkle was as good as anybody uh, right up to the very end, but he did look older. He, he looked like an older uh, pro wrestler. And uh, I think the fans just wanted to see younger people. That's all, that's all I want to say. Well, I'll tell you what, Steve. I, I've told the story on Stick to Wrestling. I think I've told it before, but I think it was like three or four years ago, so I can blow the dust off it and tell it again. Paulie Dangerously told me in front of a bunch of people that like he had a, a meeting. He, he was doing an interview, right? And he was mm -hmm. managing Dennis Condry and Randy Rose in 1987. And he's talking about, you know, what's going to happen when they win the tag team titles. Well, I'm going to have a, a big party back in New Jersey and I'm going to invite all of my friends. I'm going to invite Bruce Springsteen. I'm going to invite John Bon Jovi. And Vern's like, cut, cut, cut. Don't talk about your friends on TV. And Paul's trying to explain, no, these are big New Jersey uh, celebrities. And Vern's like, oh, well, if you want to talk about someone people will know t from New Jersey, talk about Jerry Vale. <laughs> <laughs> and th that, you know what? I'm not even knocking the guy because, like I said, you know, I'm getting older. I don't know who's in the top uh, 20 musically. I don't know what is popular on television. So I get that, that time was leaving Vern behind probably at a greater pace than most people. Yeah, but, 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 you know, he, he was in the entertainment business. Uh, you know, I mean, even, even as the years would go on on ESPN, they, they ended up having this little kind of entertainment segment on, uh, the AWA show where he'd have like, uh, since they were doing the shows from Vegas, he had Don Rickles come on. I think he had Jerry Lewis one time. And, uh, you know, he, he, he was really stuck in the past. I mean, he, he had these aging stars on instead of having, uh, you know, somebody who was hip and young and, and the fans were into. So. <laughs> I, I do remember watching one of those segments. I remember Vern Gagne going out there trying to exchange barbs with Don Rickles. And it did not work <laughs> out particularly well for Vern. But with that said, let's hear from Hulk Hogan, Baron Von Raschke, and Mad Dog Vashon. The Meet This Trio, Baron Von Raschke, the incredible Hulk Hogan, and the man in the forefront right now, the very dangerous and volatile Mad Dog Bashan. Well, this is a declaration of war. Everybody can see that. We have our army on this side, and I pity, yes, I feel sorry for our opponents, because this is the war of the, the war of the world, because... We gonna destroy everybody. Oh, can I help it? I have two Sherman tanks on each side of me. <laughs> Baron Varaski, Justin Richter, the Vizo family, all together in the ring at the same time. Dog, Hookamania, and the Baron. That is all the people need to know. Hulk Hogan. You know, that's already started. There's a whole lot of chicken going on. And it's not our team. They're half scared to death already. They know that by ourselves, we're all human destruction machines. But when we're all together, we're just like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. We're stark raven maniacs. Anytime we see the other one go crazy, it makes just one of the others go even nuttier. And you know something? I pity them. I really do. Because this is going to be it for them. I can't imagine anything worse than this. This is a fate worse than death to get in the ring with. Okay, and again, anytime we use audio like that on Sick to Wrestling, it is for review purposes only. Steve, Vince McMahon had to be, if he saw AWA TV, which I'm sure he did in 1983, he had to be looking at Hulk Hogan and salivating. 
Yeah, and he, he uh, almost said the uh, uh, Mr. T catchphrase there. I I pity the fool. He left yes. out fool, but he says I pity them. So uh, yeah, he was, and and that was of course eighty three was the year of the debut of uh, A Team, I believe, and that's uh, you know when Mr. T started to get really really big. I'll give you a quick uh, Mad Dog Vashon story okay. here. I was working for a company here in Tampa, and uh, and I met this nice lady who's probably about like you know a dozen years older than I was. So she was uh, you know a little bit older than me, and really nice lady. And you know we worked together, and over, over the the days we discussed that I was wrestling fan, and and, and the minute that she realized that, she said, "Oh, uh, wrestling, oh, okay." Uh, and she said um, that, that she used to rent a property in Omaha. She used to rent a property to the Vashon brothers. And I'm thinking to myself, okay. And uh, and then she says to me, uh, "Oh, uh, oh, the Vashon brothers—they were such losers." <laughs> and, I'm thinking, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I've read every wrestling magazine. This is wrestling royalty. How could she be saying this? But but you know, but now as the years have gone on, and I never, I didn't really push her on, like you know, why are they losers? But uh, as the years have gone on, I, I can only imagine that they probably kayfabed her at everything, like uh, you know. Uh, there's no water coming out of the sink. What do we do? <laughs> you know, it just—it must have been a miserable experience running to them. That's all I can uh, say. You know what? The more I think about it, I can see that. Like you know, sometimes these guys just can't stop fabing. Anyway, before we <laughs> before we get to the next interview, Steve, now you've got me desperately wanting to see, check out some Don Rickles back when he was on Johnny Carson. <laughs> he was funny, man. Oh, I haven't seen him in yeah. so long. Yeah, even CPO Sharky wasn't that bad in retrospect. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that, let's hear from future AWA champion Rick Martell. Tell some exciting news as the fans heard. A big disappointment in not being the world's heavyweight champ of that match with Nick Bockwinkle. You held Bobby Heenan responsible, and now you've asked for him. The promoters have signed it. It's a very big disappointment, but finally, finally I have my match against Bobby Heenan. Do you realize, Gene, what he did to me? He cost me the world's championship. I had Nick Bockwinkel who I wanted him. And on top of that, when I did hit the rope, he pulled the top rope down. I could have, there's no telling how I would land on that floor. My wrestling career could have been over. Bobby Heenan, you cost me the world's championship. And the guy answered and shows, it's one pay you for it's right finish, but when he did it in but better back at Bush, he's saying, it's what did the fair. And I guarantee you one thing, Gene. When I'm through with him, he's not going to interfere in my matches again or anybody else's for that matter. I thank you, Rick Martell. A special hello to a good friend of mine up in Evergreen, Colorado, the western suburb. Uh, so much for not talking about your friends on TV. St- Steve, Rick Martell was a year away from winning the AWA championship. He won it from uh, Jumbo Ceruta. Uh, did you see that coming? I totally did not. No, I mean, uh, when I thought about Rick Martell, I, I guess because I was in the WWF area living there, I, I thought of him as a, you know, a tag team wrestler, not really a singles wrestler. And, uh, you know, he even teamed up with future Strike Force member uh, Tito Santana in the AWA. So I didn't really think of him as a single star. But when I, you know, saw him on the cover of PWI years later, I guess in 84, uh, he definitely had a championship look to him. I mean, he, he had a great uh, look, and he only was champion for close to a year. You know, it was just, just uh, you know, I think he was a good a good champion, and as far as the challengers they had for him, they did have some good challengers, uh, probably more from a wrestling standpoint, like Mr. Saito and, 
Jimmy Garvin, different people, uh, more, more from a wrestling than a box office. I don't think he was like popping the houses that no. much, but, 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 but they were, he was putting on a good, a good uh, show and, and, uh, and then he, after this, I think he went back to Montreal for a while, worked in Montreal and then eventually got the call to come to, uh, Connecticut and, and work with Can-Am Connection for a while. So. Yeah, I, I Rick Martel was an outstanding in-ring performer. He's a really good-looking guy. Interviews, not so much. I I think a lot of it, like a lot of people say, oh, you know, the AWA really went downhill with Rick Martel as champion. I think they didn't really use him properly as champion. I, I always thought they should have looked at what the WWF did with Bob Backlund and just start rotating challengers in for him, especially big guys for him to go out and conquer. And instead of, you know, having these quote unquote scientific matches with, with uh, Billy Robinson or, or, you know, obviously you have to have the series with, with Nick Bockwinkle, but you can't have it go on forever. Yeah, yeah, the uh, AWA was always because of Vern and his amateur background. It was always wrestling first and anything else second, and uh, ultimately that was the the cause of the demise of the uh, AWA, I believe, because wrestling went from uh, being the focus of the show of any wrestling show to kind of becoming the secondary thing. Whether it was the interviews, the music, uh, uh, just the feuds. Uh, wrestling it's the actual wrestling itself became secondary uh, as we got into the mid to late 80s i mean you brought up a good point about Vern gagne i mean Vern wanted guys to have that amateur background that Vern gagne had vince mcmahon was a bodybuilder who did he build around bodybuilders uh bill watts Mm-hmm. You know, former big former football player. Who did Bill Watts like to push? Big guys who used to play football. Right. Yeah. He he really liked tough guys, and uh, and when he brought in somebody, yeah, when he when he you know had a Bill Dundee there to give him some other ideas, like he realized Bill Watts did that. Hey, we need we need uh, to see you know some uh, female fans come to the show, so let's get some you know Rock and Roll Express type uh, wrestlers come in. So. Uh, these promoters really needed to think more uh, instead of just what what they like and what they want uh, try to think about what will bring in a big audience of, of a diverse crowd to enjoy the show I mean not not to talk about an uh, an unrelated thing a thing unrelated to the AWA but I mean I remember the Rock and Roll Express when they made their debut in Mid-South Wrestling they had they had been on TV before in videos but they had not been to the arena before and this is viewable by the way on Peacock this is like the very end of 1983 they show up uh, at in Shreveport at the Irish McNeil Boys Club and they'd never been there before, and the play the place exploded. They loved the Rock and Roll Express. So Bill Watts saw something that obviously Jerry Jarrett didn't. Yeah, I mean rest, wrestling. Um the audience, I mean, there has to be a little bit of something different for everybody. I think Eddie, Eddie Graham described wrestling as kind of a, like a wrestling card would be kind of like a smorgasbord. You have to have a, your, your comedy match or scientific opening match or uh, you know, a little bit of everything. I mean, if you look at WrestleMania three, it, it has all that. It has, uh, you know, some good wrestling. It has the comedy match with Bundy and Hillbilly Jim and the midgets. Uh, it has this good wrestling with Savage and Steamboat. And then the epic encounter with, Andre and Hogan. So, uh, you know, not every, every card has to be WrestleMania three, but if you have a, a card that 
offers you a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and kind of covers all the bases, you know, you should be in business for quite some time. No, I agree with you. I mean, one common complaint about uh today's wrestling in 2023 is that everybody looks the same and everyone does the same stuff. And you're right. I mean, there was a, a lot of diversity in you know, pro wrestling in the late seventies, early eighties. And, you know, we just got to the point with the AWA that, you know, the lack of young talent really brought them down. With that, let's hear some more audio. We've got Sergeant Jacques Goulet, Mad Dog Vashon and Vern Gagne. Action in just a moment. Sergeant Jacques Goulet, I wanted to bring you in. King Jerry Lawler out of Memphis, Tennessee. The man you're going to be facing here on the next big upcoming card. Jerry Lawler, the king. Who is the king? I'm going to tell you one thing. When I was in a... Gee, what in the world? Mad Dog Vashon. My... This is more important. The announcement I have to make is more important. I finally convinced him, Bert Gagne, come here, come here, Bert Gagne. I finally convinced him that Bert is the most important announcement of the century in wrestling. Bert Gagne accepted to be my partner. You have got to be kidding me. Right, you, you are, can I get Bert Gagne? My word, come on in here. Is it true what this man says? Yes, Gene, I tell you, I've never been under such pressure man, in the last 15 minutes. I've been as much pressure all my life than I have. This, uh, I've been like in a boiler and a cooker. With this man on my back and pulling out my tire, my father, my father. <laughs> he pointed out to me all the things oh. that have happened over the years here with these two people, Blackwell and Sheik, with the Greg situation and, and Brunzel, and what kind of a man I was I, what kind of a father was I, am I gutless, am I this, am I yellow, and I just can't stand it. So, yes, I have consented to be the Mad Dog's partner against Blackwell and Sheik. And that's it, baby. What about Goulet? He just got floored here by Mad Dog Vashon. Talk about news, ladies and gentlemen. What a bombshell. Mad Dog Vashon getting Vern Gagne to team up with him to go against the Sheik and Jerry Blackwell. How? Okay, obviously you can't see it, but what happened was Rene Goulet was doing, or Sergeant Jacques Goulet was doing his interview, and Mad Dog Vashon just comes out and knocks him on his keister and evicts him. I always thought, Steve, that, that pro wrestling, it, it requires a little bit of bullying like that. I don't think there was one fan out there who was like, oh, Mad Dog, you shouldn't have done that. He was just talking. They're like, yeah, Mad Dog, get him. Well, I'll I'll say this. Uh, here's a new a new candidate for title of the episode. Uh, Mad Dog Vishana is a spaz. Uh, he, he he he. Uh, on this, you know, again, you can't see the video of this. Or maybe you can look it up on YouTube. But he he uh, when he talks about being partners with Vern Ganya, he's like you know, jumping up and down like a little schoolgirl, And, uh, you know, when I'm watching him on this, he reminds me of kind of like the AWA's answer to George Steele, I guess, just as, you know, wild, uncontrollable individual. Um, I mean, Mad Dog had actual amateur wrestling training and was a legitimate uh, shooter, I guess. Uh, George Steele, not so much, but he was, a, you know, really a tough guy uh, and nobody would mess with him. Uh, but, but they were both really... Uh, 
oddball wrestling characters from left field. They, they, they certainly were. You know, I don't know the whole story behind what brought Vern Gagne out of retirement to take on uh, Sheik Adnan El Casey and, and Crusher Blackwell, but in my opinion, if you're if you're if you're going to do that, and clearly Vern came out of retirement a bunch of times, you've got to have a, a bigger storyline than that. It's got to be this like maybe once every eighteen months, Vern Gagne comes out of retirement. And it's all, it always has to be for something big, in my opinion. Well, if you notice Vern's little promo that he cut right at the end of it, he says, like, uh, I'll be right there, baby. And it's not <laughs> like uh, something he took out of uh, the Bill After magazine, like, uh, you know, something out of one of those interviews. But uh, I think he had to prove he was young and hit by saying baby in the clip there. <laughs> he certainly proved it all right. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Let's hear from a little-known wrestler named Hulk Hogan back in 1983 when he was still with the AWA. Ventura, the native of Venice Beach, California, big man, popular indeed. Good reason for your wanting the native of San Diego, Jesse Ventura. You know something? The intensity of the whole thing made the AWA open its eyes and realize the only way to get this thing said and done was to put the holster in Mr. Jesse Ventura in a one-on-one situation. You know something? It goes way, way back to when the holster was hurt. And then I came back and declared war on the Bobby Heenan family and Mr. Jesse Ventura. Ventura, you were the instigator of the whole thing because you stood for everything that I hate. The holster hat was on a roll. I had the world's heavyweight title within my grasp. Very close. And I was climbing to the top of the ladder. And Mr. Ventura... You instigated this premeditated assault, and now you're the one <laughs> that got yourself in this position. After the last time out, you forced this thing upon yourself, and now I hope you're ready for justice's due. You know, Hulk, I'm going to point out at this time that I have watched and followed the career of Jesse Ventura very, very closely. Over the past three or four years, his association with Adrian Adonis, world tag team champion, no doubt about it. The fans really feel that Ventura should pay for the injury to that big arm of yours. And the thing is, nothing even compares to what's going down now. Mr. Ventura, Hulkamania is still running wild no matter what you did. You are mine in a one-on-one situation. And now you're going to have to face me in the center of the ring by yourself in a single match. Mr. Ventura, there's a long list of people that I owe because I'm going right back to the top of the ladder. And body, it's you and me. Good against evil. Holster versus Mr. V. I hope you're ready because Hulkamania is in the largest arms in the world. The 24-inch pythons are ready for you. I'm going to squeeze every oh, bit of breath out of your body. the very popular big man, the incredible Hulk Hogan and Mr. V, Jesse the Body Ventura. This is what this man wants. And according to promoter... Steve, couple of things. Um... Uh, I In 1984, I saw Hulk Hogan versus Jesse the Body Ventura at a little ice arena in Manchester, New Hampshire. And this was before both of them became absolutely household names. Just, you know, I, but it's something I look back on and say, wow, you know, I get to see these two in this tiny little venue. But and here's something we've talked about before, Steve. Gene Okerlund in the WWF. I mean, I if I were Vince McMahon, I was watching this. I'd be like, look, I want this Hulk Hogan guy, this Gene Okerlund guy. I have no interest in, but not Vince. He says, you know what? I want this Gene Oakland guy. If he can turn up the volume a little bit more. (laughs) 
<laughs> and and he would certainly do that. And and Hulk, uh, Hulk would turn it up more yes. too. I think everybody turned it up a lot more when you think about it. But uh, yeah, it's it, and and let me ask you about the ice show. I mean, uh, how was that experience? Like, how was that match? I don't, you know, I don't remember much about the match at all. I mean, everyone went home happy because Hogan got the one, two, three. The Freebirds were there on that night too. It was crazy. That is crazy. Gosh. All right. I'll, I'll tell you what. Let's hear from Blackjack Lanza and Bobby the Brain Heenan. And Blackjack, La- Blackjack Lanza, you are going to be part of this tremendous, tremendous 20-man tournament for the Missouri State title. Yes, when the promoters come up with this idea of a 20-man tournament, fine. Whose name did they call first? They call Blackjack Lanza Bobby Heenan for the simple reason... When you think of wrestling in St. Louis, you think of Heenan and Lanza, Lanza and Heenan. Just look over the years. Who have we beaten? Von Erichs. We have beaten Bruiser, Gene Koniski, the Funks, the Briscoes. Look and read the rules, and you will see the results. Blackjack Lanza is number one in St. Louis. And when this man and I show up in St. Louis on the 15th, there's only going to be one champion there. Forget the other 20 men. All right, now, Bobby Heenan, this is obviously the cream of professional wrestling's crop. You talk about these great names. Uh, so many, many are going to be involved. Blackwell, uh, Ken Patera, Ric Flair, Hercules Hernandez, Baron Von Raschke, Bob Orton Jr., Valentine Bruiser, all of those names. That's right. And when you can walk out of that ring with the Missouri State Championship after walking over and beating all these top professional wrestlers in the world today you're recognized as somebody you're on the next step of the ladder to wrestling for the nwa championship so all you other wrestlers get ready because there's only going to be one winner leave that ring with the missouri belt and that's this man right here and mr race you get ready because after we walk over the other 19 men you know what's next don't you i've got a harley race Look at the new Missouri State champion. Well, it all and remains to be seen. I thank you, Bobby Heaton, Blackjack Lanza, that big one, July the 15th, and we're going to be back with more. Blackjack Lanza, sometimes I don't know what to make of his career. He was mostly a tag team guy in the 70s, teaming up with Blackjack Mulligan and then Bobby Duncan. Then in 1979, he goes to Georgia with Bobby Heenan and gets this crazy push where they make him the Georgia heavyweight champion and the number one heel in the promotion. Then after that, he disappears until like the middle of 1983. He comes out of retirement and he's back with the AWA. Uh, one thing I will say about Jack Lanza is is that, uh, you know, if you ask the average fan, you know, why did the WWF uh, succeed where the other promoters promotions didn't? And they'll probably say, like, well, they had Hulk Hogan, they had Roddy Piper, they had Randy Savage. Uh, one thing I would say for Vince is that he, he made these behind-the-scenes uh, moves of people within the business, like acquiring uh, Jim Barnett, uh, George Scott, and then lastly, uh, Blackjack Lanza himself. I think uh, Jack Lanza had uh, a very key role behind the scenes in the AWA uh, that he, I think he believed he promoted Winnipeg. And when uh, Jack Lanza finally came over to WWF, 
Uh, I think he uh, made a foothold for them into Winnipeg. And uh, he was uh, not only uh, really one of uh, Vince's top uh, road agents, but he was uh, really involved uh, uh, heavily with uh, working with the wrestlers on their promos. And, uh, and he was really, um, you know, until the very end, uh, and he lasted with Vince for God, 25 years or so, uh, one of Vince's trusted allies. So uh, that was a great pickup to, to bring him on the roster. Steve, you may not believe this, but there has been a rumor out there that while the Blackjack Lonza was still uh, working for the AWA, he was actually working for Vince McMahon. Shocker, huh? Yeah, <laughs> I have heard. I have heard that rumor. That's interesting. All right. So well, I'll tell you what. Let's hear now from the legendary Vern Gagne. You've just seen exciting action featuring high flyer Greg Gagne. I want to bring in Greg's father, Vern Gagne, former world's heavyweight champ. Vern, a lot going on in the in the horse business, so to speak, and and well, since we're in St. Louis, uh, something happening very close. Well, uh, Gene, I just got to refer here to Greg. I thought he had an outstanding match here uh, with uh, with Adonis. Uh, he had uh, uh, other ideas of becoming a football player when he came out of college, but wrestling really was in his blood, and that's where he lied. He he forsook football, a uh, chance to play with the Atlanta Falcons, and went into pro football. I'm very very proud of that fact. I just wanted to mention that. All right. Yes, uh, I am into the, the quarter horse uh, uh, business, shall we say, and as my hobby also. And I do have a great, great stallion. Now that's uh, at Cuba, Missouri. At Cuba, Missouri, with my good trainer and good friends, Jody Gallion, and his beautiful wife, and uh, the horses out there. And we got a, a stallion that we think is one of the top stall- quarter horse stallions in America today. And uh, so anybody that's interested in having quarter horses bred, Jody Gallion in Cuba, Missouri is the man to, to, to see. All right. The man I've got to talk to about professional wrestling, you, as a former champion. Here's a 20-man tournament, Vern, and wrestling's elite will be part of it. Well, I do want to say, in all my years of wrestling, I don't think I've ever seen so many big names in any one tournament for a one-day tournament in my whole life. It's going to be one of the great ones of all time. Thank you. I thank you, ladies and gentlemen. He is former world's heavyweight champion, the legendary... All right, so we're talking the wrestling business here. Where, and Steve, you know this. When you watched wrestling back in the day, you saw commercials for, oh, I don't know, you know, get off the couch, buddy, and learn a trade. Here, we'll give you a trade. <laughs> we'll have you ready to go in a year doing HVAC or something. Uh, you know, here's where you can get a cheap car. Here's where you can get your muffler fixed inexpensively. But Vern's going to tell you also where you can get your your quarter horse train. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, if if you're if you're watching TV back in the '70s or the '80s, and you're watching, say, the Merv Griffin show, and and there's Merv on the sofa with, we'll say, William Shatner, who got a mention last week, and and you know, Shatner owns a whole bunch of horses, and you know, he's got a horse farm in Kentucky. I mean, that's all well and good. He's he's a movie star, a TV star, and you expect that as someone like Shatner. Now, Vern comes on the wrestling show and you're expecting him to talk about wrestling, but because he's a rich guy and he, he owns the promotion and I don't know if we're supposed to know that or not, but he, he has to go and brag about, you know, the horses he owns and, uh, you know, it, it just comes off just so so highfalutin and so ridiculous and you know wrestling was always something for the blue collar people to watch and enjoy i don't think he should have been doing that but uh you know he was the owner and uh 
I, I think uh, <laughs> he did whatever he, the hell he wanted, I guess. That, that's pretty much it. I mean, Vern, I think you kind of have to have that confidence, too. Like, you have to be able to say to yourself, hey, if I go out there and read the phone book, I'll be interesting. So, quarter horses, hey, that's even more interesting than the phone booth. Phone booth. Phone booth. Those don't even exist anymore. Phone book. Those don't exist anymore <laughs> either. But final interview, let's hear from Ken Patera. Impressive indeed, strongman Ken Patera, the strongest man in professional wrestling, my guest, the man who is going to be part of that gigantic 20-man tournament for the Missouri State title. You don't mind being corrected, do you? The world's strongest professional athlete, please. All right. That includes wrestling, the king of sports. And everybody knows my credentials in the St. Louis area and everywhere else. Let's talk about him, Ken Patera. Four gold medals in the Pan American Games, Olympic team member, bronze medalist. Four uh, world championships, four national championships. Whatever Ken Patera set out to do, Ken Patera accomplished. And that's why I've always been number one. Not only in my own eyes, but in the eyes of all the fans. Whether wrestling, weightlifting, track and field, football, whatever it is. I always come to the top. And I'm going to come to the top again. Twenty men in this tournament. It's probably the best collection of athletes ever in one spot, in one given evening. You know, Ken Patera, this is wrestling's elite, the finest. You talk about a man like Hulk Hogan. Tremendous ability in the size of this man. Ric Flair, Crusher Black, well, that list goes on and on and on. That's right, a lot of ex-champions. And they're all looking for another championship so they can say that they're number one. And I'll tell you, I've had that Missouri State title twice. And I'm looking for it a third time. Now, you have a guy like Hogan, 6'8 and a half, 341 pounds, beating up on a little movie actor, Sylvester Stallone, that's 5'11 and wow. a half and weighs 165 pounds. Now, you're a big man, Hogan, but you're not too big to be knocked down. And Blackwell, 480 pounds. You have Ric Flair, ex-NWA champion, just defeated recently by Harley Race. So that made Harley Race vacate the Missouri State title. That's what it's all about. And you're looking at the man that's going to take it. We Harley Race, you're going to have to meet Ken I'm Patera sorry, after Ken I Patera. win this Missouri We're State time for St. Louis, the time. big one on July the 15th. And, of course, be back here again next Sunday morning. In the meantime, keep looking. You know, I listened to that Patera interview, and earlier... I was like, you know, you have all these heels that are screaming on the microphone, right, Steve? So I'm, mm-hmm. if I'm in that dressing room and I'm in that interview room and I'm seeing all that, I'm like, I'm going to be out there. If I'm, the, if I'm a heel and I see all these guys screaming, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to whisper. I'm going to talk slowly and calmly and quietly. I'm going to separate myself from the pack, much like Ken Patera, for the most part, did in that interview. Yeah, what what you're uh, what you're describing is the interview of uh, Jake Roberts. Uh, Jake Roberts was a phenomenal interview, but he was always uh, almost talking in a whisper or a quiet, quiet voice. Uh, but that made you uh, get your your ears open and and pay attention and get closer to the TV or turn up the volume because you know you figured whatever it is he's saying must be really important. Uh, and uh, it is it is nice to see somebody that's so different than the rest. It, it really makes them stand out. That's the thing in pro wrestling. You know, even before 1984, when, you know, the gimmicks became more and more outrageous and guys had to do more to stand out, you had to do what you needed to do to stand out in this business. A lot of guys want that spot that Ken Patera had. Yeah, Ken Patera was uh, a great, great wrestler. And, uh, you know, it's it's sad that uh, people 
think more about the McDonald's incident than his career because uh, what he did in uh, mainly the WWF, somewhat in the AWA, uh, should be really fondly remembered by wrestling fans. Fondly remembered by me. I mean, I will tell you that in 1983, if you would ask me, I, you know, who should be the next NWA champion? I, I, Ken Patera would absolutely have been on the list. WWF champion in 83, he would have been at the top of my list. So, you know, I have nothing but respect for the guy. He, you know, had a great run in Georgia. He had a great run in St. Louis. I could, you know, great runs all over the place. Yeah, actually, um, if any, anybody is interested, uh, if you go on Google and do a search for um, AWA results from 84, and if you just do your friendly control F, you can put in St. Louis and just look at the St. Louis shows. And uh, it's amazing. Uh, Patera's on quite a few of these shows from 84. And uh, there's one card on here uh, that, that blew my mind as far as just the, uh, the, the main matches on it. The main event that I'm talking about, uh, it was from September of 84, uh, NWA champion Ric Flair against Harley Race. And listen to this tag team championship match. AWA tag team champions, the Road Warriors, defeated Dick the Bruiser and Blackjack Lanza. What a weird uh, what a weird match that oh, is. Oh, yeah. And, and, and then there, were, there was another show where the uh, the Road Warriors defended against the, the Funk Brothers, which was really uh, amazing. Uh, actually, the October show in St. Louis and Martell and Harley went to a 60-minute draw for the AWA championship. So really interesting to see uh, these matchups that uh, weren't frequently uh, happening, just kind of like one-off matches. No, when when Sam Mushnick retired, I mean, St. Louis changed uh, dramatically and kind of for, for the worst. They had the split in the promotion and then, you know, it just kind of went downhill quite quickly, but I mean, they did have some fun shows in 83 and 84. Steve, it has been a longer program than usual, but I, I think we've entertained the stick to wrestling universe. Well, it, it's always interesting to give the AWA a shout out. Uh, you know, it doesn't get much love, but uh, here we gave it a good uh, hour plus today. We did. And this is not the last you're going to hear about AWA in 1983. We are going to have uh, tentatively Brad Brightsman on at some point. We'll do a complete review of the AWA during that year. So, Steve, I want to thank you for taking the time and, and joining us on Stick to Wrestling once again. Thanks, John. It was great to be here, and I look forward to our next episode. Uh, definitely same here. I want to thank uh, Brian Last for giving us this forum. Uh, I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does producing this. Believe me, if we just let it fly raw, it wouldn't be that good. And I want And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you guys next week. This concludes our podcast day.